Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Lou Daddyamo. Uh, I'm the Managing Director of Best Case Scenario. Thank you all for joining us for our In Conversations with, with Changemakers. This is our opportunity to, to sit down and have a conversation with individuals that really impact, whether it's businesses, whether it's uh, local communities, governments, um, the, it, it's people that have impact and change across our economy. So with that, I am delighted um, to welcome Dr. Ian Opperman. Uh, Chief Data Scientist for New South Wales Government. Ian is also the President of the, of the Australian Computer Society and he's a professor, uh, Industry Professor uh, for Smart Cities at UTS. Just a few things that Ian has uh, uh, to, to, to be accountable for. And, and also joining me is a good friend uh, and, and colleague of mine, uh, Mr. Matt, Mr. Watt, Mr. Watt Jones, Mr. Matt Wynne Jones. Uh, Matt and I, believe it or not, even I can't say his name, uh, have known each other for a very long time and have sat side by side, many events with the AIA over the years. Um, so I thought it very uh, fitting that Matt joined us today as well. So, so welcome in and, and welcome Matt. Great to be here. Okay. And, 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 and you're welcome. And, and Ian, beautiful piece of artwork uh, behind you there. I can't help but, but mention that. Um, anything you'd like to tell me about that piece of artwork? It's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. The artist is, is Yvonne Burton. Uh, she's from the APY lands and it's called My Country. And it's it's a really spectacular piece of art. It's the first grown-up piece of art that my wife and I bought. Well, you, you've started really well. That is beautiful. Love it. Now, Ian, the, the topic today is, is data security and AI transparency during the pandemic, which sounds like a really big uh, topic for us to cover in the next 20, 30 minutes. But before you know, I go into my questions, for somebody that's not necessarily day-to-day -day living and breathing in AI, can you give us a definition of what AI means to you and in your role? It's a, it's a very good question. So New South Wales has taken the perspective that AI is a fairly broad church in the sense of we've been using machine learning, we've been using different uh, relatively increasingly sophisticated algorithmic approaches to understand and analyse data. And we've said all of that is AI. But for, for most people... AI probably could best be described as a, an algorithm or a relatively independent piece of software that will learn from data and adapt over time. And it's that adaptation which really makes it different from, from systems that just either do a one-off shot type calculation or a system that will just keep doing the same processing all the time. Mm. I, think, I think algorithms people most people can relate to these days and had experiences of algorithms in regards to how they receive information through social media uh, when they're doing searches and, and the likes. Um, so I guess the, the, my next question would be the, the role of ethics around all this. I think you know that's a big concern for, for individuals uh, around the role that ethics plays when you're talking about AI and sharing of data. Um, and I guess the, you know, the, the, the second part of that is the, the, the messaging around it to public um, to get them so they understand what what, what, what what we mean around ethics and what we mean around privacy. So it, it's really interesting. I think that the nature of that issue has evolved over time. When I started with the Data Analytics Centre way back in 2015, part of the messaging was that with, with these very different data sets, we could ask questions we'd never been able to ask before. We, we could know things we'd never been able to know before. And that automatically introduces an ethical challenge if you know that these indicators lead to a certain risk of a certain outcome, and that might be a health outcome, it might be a safety outcome. There's a real ethical challenge around what you do once you know, or in fact, should you even ask the question? 
I think it has evolved a little because the, the power of AI and, and the, the, the abundance of data has really started to show that we can ask really powerful questions. We can also put ourselves in, in situations where we have to make choices between what we do with, with a, uh, some information or an insight versus what we have historically done when we didn't know that bit of information or that insight. So I think the conversation has really moved to, I guess, thinking through whether or not the problem or the challenge we have is an AI challenge. If you take away the AI, is it a data challenge? If you take away the data, is it actually a policy challenge or a, a bigger challenge? And that at least that way of simplifying the ethical dilemma as it is it AI, is it data, or actually is it what we're trying to achieve has certainly helped me when thinking about what we're trying to do in New South Wales. Mm. And is that is that a common approach? Go on, Matt, you go. I was going to say, have you seen a, um, a shift in the public perception? Obviously, there's uh, some concerns around there, but have you seen that shift over the last I don't know, 18 months? Yeah, I think everyone was quite impacted by the, the robo-debt situation. That was an example of a loop that was allowed to close without a human being providing oversight. So an algorithm running over data, producing a result, leading to a letter, leading to a fine, and leading to real-world impact on real-world people without the opportunity to, to inject a human being in there. And I think that that really caused people to sit up and, and take notice. So when new solutions have been implemented, there's been a, a lot more cautiousness about how far you can go with that algorithmic insight. Will you actually close the loop and make a decision? Now, if we're talking about an automated door, for example, on a train, that's quite a different thing. The, the door is measuring people flow through, through an opening and it might decide to keep the door open for another 30 seconds. A relatively low harm, relatively low context decision to be made. And if things go wrong, the train is delayed by 30 seconds. Whereas even something like the automated detection of mobile phone cameras with, with drivers in New South Wales is something that came into place towards the end of last year. There's a human being that, that intervenes in that process so that fines don't automatically get issued. So that candidates are put forward, a human being reviews, and a decision is made as to whether or not there is actually a driver using a phone. It's, it's, it's also challengeable by the driver in that case. But the point is that there's a human being in the loop and the human makes that final determination. So I think in general, our willingness to engage with AI and our, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, is becoming greater. Anyone who's ever used a search engine, anyone who uses social media is directly engaging with AI, whether they know it or not. And we are beginning to expect increasing personalization to the extent that if you can't find what you need quickly, it becomes a great source of frustration. So I think people have accepted the, the opportunities and, and the benefits from engaging with AI, but are increasingly aware of the consequences of that personalization and the consequences of or potential harms that are created if that loop is allowed to run in a situation where we haven't thought about the unintended consequences, which in fact is a tricky thing to do when you talk about unintended consequences. But still increasingly, we're pushing that envelope, pushing that boundary to say, we need to think about potential harms we need to think about potential consequences, and also we need to think about secondary harms. So I think wonderfully, we're having a more sophisticated conversation. Challengingly though, more and more AI is being deployed and we're, we're still playing catch up to some extent, thinking about 
what are the assurance mechanisms we need to put in place. Is there a risk, Ian, that there's parts of our community that, that may be missed out in regards to the sorts of services that they receive and have access to because, you know, they're not digitally enabled, you know, they don't have a smartphone, they're not, you know, they're not engaging with us in, in that sort of way. I mean, AI is dependent on, you know, that sort of interaction. Um, so, you know, when, from a government point of view, do you, do you make considerations for services we can provide, uh, you know, insights, how we're going to capture insights from those parts of the community? Um, Mm. It's very tempting to keep the assumption that everybody has a smartphone and everybody's willing and able to use it uh, at the front of mind. It's just smartphones and smart platforms are just so easy to deploy to and are so easy to adapt. But of course, it's not the reality that people are prepared to use smartphones or even have smartphones. I I think about members of my own family, for example, who do not have smartphones and who actually don't understand what a QR code is or even how to scan it. Mm, mm. So there have been some some quite uh, genuine attempts to try and accommodate for people either who are unwilling or unable to use smartphones or unwilling or unable to, to use the smart tech. So that you can still, for example, top up your Opal card by putting cash into a machine uh, if we could use public transport. Uh, yeah. you, you could still, for example, sign in instead of using a QR code. And there have been some great attempts from Service New South Wales, for example, to go into to, um, old people's homes and elderly uh, to, to aged care villages, again, pre-current lockdown, and deliver the service directly to individuals. And these human, less technical attempts to, to reach out really do speak to the issue of inclusion. But I, I think the trend of assuming smartphones and assuming uh, people's willingness to use it will certainly continue. Mm. Yeah, yeah. At a, at a customer service level, um, I remember the very early days of New South Wales customer service and talking uh, about why we didn't push the digital agenda harder. And it was that those um, the walk-up um, uh, centres were actually training grounds, to, to, to your point. Uh, so we there has been some progress in that. And, and if you walk into any service New South Wales office, uh, now it is... Um, it's full, generally full all the time. But in terms of specific things for uh, New South Wales customer service, from an AI perspective, what, what where are the big challenges there? So in the, at the moment, we're actually developing an assurance framework. So the AI strategy was released uh, last year, and we've been exploring existing solutions from the perspective of harms, benefits, uh, assurance frameworks. And so right at the moment, we're, we're busily developing those assurance frameworks. Along the way, we've, we've looked more closely at the Revenue New South Wales Vulnerability Prediction Tool, the one that we showcased at the AI summits for the last couple of years, and hopefully will again later this year. We've also taken a really deep dive into the sepsis prediction tool that Ministry of Health has been using in emergency departments. And again, looking at that from the perspective of benefits, harms, alternatives, and looking at building insurance. We've looked at work from the building commissioner. So we've been trying to look across all of New South Wales, where projects have been implemented, not for analytical purposes, not for generating insights insights from snapshot and time data sets, but increasingly for operational use. And that, that's where we really need to build with care. So as we look at these different projects, we are stepping through the, the AI strategy, the AI ethics policy, and the how-to guide that were released last year, and trying to bring that to life, either for projects which are tapping into the Digital Restart Fund or very large projects, which include AI, 
but also trying to provide resources for people who are looking to build their own solutions internally. And that could be quite simply anything from a, a, a telephone voice activated menu system, tell me something about your inquiry today so I can direct it to the right place, to ideas around use of, of passenger identification for, for understanding uh, mask wearing compliance on public transport. So we're looking across all of those different applications and looking to understand what are the benefits and how do we clearly articulate those benefits? What are the harms that could arise as a consequence of use of this AI, including secondary harms, including harms which result from cumulative use? And then thinking through mitigation strategies or, or, or pre-establishing mitigation strategies so that if you're looking to implement something which makes the service faster, better, more efficient, more effective, that you don't inadvertently move down a pathway that, that could create a harm. Now, harm is a is pretty general term that we use, and we've been talking about a, quite a wide range of different harms. We've also been connecting very closely with the Human Rights Commissioner, or in fact now the slightly ex-Human Rights Commissioner, and thinking about how do we ensure the obligations that New South Wales, and as part of Australia, we have to the Human Rights Charter are being satisfied. But at the same time, not trying to overcomplicate things so that if you do have a relatively benign application, that you don't get caught up in the need for human research ethics approval, for example. So the challenge really is to balance the applicability of an assurance framework and, and making it easy to use, but also making it sophisticated enough so that we do start to identify areas of risk that we can rapidly identify mitigations, or in fact, start to think about some custom crafted solutions in order to ensure that the, the, the challenges or the risks and the benefits are equally balanced or appropriately balanced. With, with, with your ACS hat on, Ian, is there a skills shortage or, or opportunity here? So the ACS does skilled uh, visa, uh, so skilled worker assessments in order to for, for people to migrate to Australia. And of course, there has not been a lot of in fact, close to zero migration to Australia in the last mm. year or so. The demand is still strong. People are still putting forward applications to say that they'd like to come into the, the country as skilled migrants. On the flip side, what we're seeing is with the release of the Digital Pulse, the annual Digital Pulse earlier this year, that the estimated required number of workers is growing quite dramatically. And there is clearly a gap between the estimated need for skilled tech workers and the, the the population that we can grow in Australia. So the the interest is still there from the rest of the world. The need is still here inside the country, but of course the, the two are, are, are challenging to close that gap because of water restrictions. So I think there's, there's an opportunity for us to, to dig a little deeper into how we would grow domestic talent mm -hmm. and how we would actually trying to get more people to, to move into the space and in particular more women to move into the space. Yeah. And, but not necessarily at the data scientist end, but move it in, move into a space where the idea of retraining or the idea of, of being able to, to reskill at TAFE level, at, at entry level ICT is still something that would be potentially quite a meaningful impact in terms of the, the, the total demand in Australia. So the, the upshot of all of that, yes, there's still a skill shortage. Yes, that skill shortage is expected to grow. And I think there is this time for some innovative solutions where we're looking to increasingly grow and motivate domestic talent to operate in this space. Mm.
Yeah. I've just got a question, I guess, and more I, I really around. Thought, uh, you know, sorry, Lily. Sorry, Matt, you go. You know I can talk forever, Matt, you go. <laughs> yeah, just, just around just around the um <laughs> the, the, the role in New South Wales, which you have a, a fantastic grasp on, but uh, but at a, at a national level, um, and, and even at an international level, the role of AI in terms of that data sharing in a secure way. Um, national Cabinet was sort of formed to, to provide a political forum uh, for the sharing of at least ideas. Um, is, is the, do we, are we seeing that same thing from a national perspective, from a data sharing or an AI perspective? Uh, and is there an opportunity then for international um, collaboration around artificial intelligence? So Matt, there's, there's a lot to that question. Let me see if I can just unpack some of it. So COVID certainly showed the value of data and insights and data is one thing, being able to analyze that data, whether it's through machine learning or through AI to produce those insights, which have been actionable is really the highest value use of data. People can look at data, people can visualize data and you get something, but when you can run algorithms over it as well and complement that with, with insights generated from other sources, that's extremely powerful. Everybody's understanding and appreciation of data and insights or data analytics, I think grew last year and continues to grow throughout 2021. There was also very clearly a lot of data that needed to cross jurisdictional boundaries, state Commonwealth in particular, in order to understand not only the impact of COVID from a health perspective, but also how effective the responses were and also the impact on the economy of the stimulating effects or also just how how uh, how much different parts of the economy were actually suffering and whether that was from a regional perspective or whether it was from a, a sectoral perspective. It was very, very clear that the states and the Commonwealth collectively held the data that they needed to answer the question and also to understand how effective the interventions were. But those data sharing mechanisms were certainly not as mature as they might have been in order to move the data as quickly as it, it could have moved to have the greatest impact. Fast forward to this year, we've had now an extremely strong uh, uptake in, in willingness to move data. I, I've said for quite a long time, people don't share data because they're unwilling, unable, not allowed. The unwilling has changed. The willingness has certainly increased and recently off the back of the work done on the data availability and transparency bill uh, through the office of the National Data Commissioner and through the office of Prime Minister and Cabinet working closely with the states, in our case it's, it's Minister Dominello, the intergovernmental agreements, the, the principles around data sharing have moved remarkably quickly. And so there are now principles in place that say this is, these are the circumstances, these are the criteria we have for data sharing. It must address a problem of significance. It must address a problem that is, is of concern to multiple states and the Commonwealth. And it must be an area that you can work through to some extent before you opt out of the, the data sharing. So you can't just blank and say, no, I'm not going to do it. You need to work through and see whether or not it's actually feasible before you opt in or before you opt out of that situation. So those principles are in place. They happened in, in the world of government with lightning speed, but after as many iterations as was needed to, to get them agreed. What happens next is the data program. So the actual programs of work. So addressing issues related to problems of national and state significance. And there are a set of candidate areas that all the states and the Commonwealth are looking through over the coming weeks and months to try and better shape the problem, better shape the scope and better shape the data. So that's the data sharing aspect. In the world of AI, 
the Commonwealth released a set of AI ethics principles uh, last year. Oh, in fact, excuse me, it was, it was 2019. It just seems like last year. So within the last couple of years, the AI ethics principles were released, work done with, with Data61. And those principles are, broadly speaking, uh, I think, acceptable to every state and territory. The challenge, of course, is bringing those principles, principles to life. So New South Wales released our AI strategy last year, which has a manifestation of them and some practical guidance how to bring them to life. And now we're in the process of releasing that assurance framework that once, once you've decided you will deploy an AI solution, these are the steps you need to take. These are the questions you need to ask, which map back to the principles, which map back to the strategy. So I think broadly speaking, we are operating nationally within a broad umbrella of this is acceptable use of AI. The devil is always in the detail and the devil is always in the particular deployment. So what I'm hoping happens is that as each state and territory deploys their solutions, as this Commonwealth deploys their solutions, we do some, some bottom-up as well as that top-down work to close out more specifically what we mean. There's also great work being done in the world of standards, and there's a group led with very strong input from Australia. It's actually led internationally, but there's a really strong group of Australia contributing to that standards work, which is, again, getting really specific. And... I've often talked about the gaps between the principles and the bits. We can have principles-based policy, we can have principles-based legislation or regulation, but getting down to the, what can I do with this data set in the circumstance is often a very, very big bridge or gap to be bridged. The world of standards is trying very hard to move up from the bits into the frameworks. There's, there's work being done on data sharing and use, which is actually being led by Australia. There's work being done around AI standardization, which is heavily being contributed to by Australia. These areas are helping with the bits and that helps identify the risk frameworks, which we are trying in New South Wales to then map that to the policy and then the policy lines up with the principles. And so for the first time, it's really starting to come together. We're really starting to get that principles to bits working. It's still a work in progress, but it's now we've got a couple of steps between those two different worlds so that an engineer or a data scientist or a data analyst can hopefully find their way all the way back to, am I aligned with the principles and am I doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing in order to help us with a meta question of appropriate use and also continuing to build and maintain trust. As that starts to firm up, that's something that I'm hoping is shared more broadly at a national perspective. And we will also have contributed to the international standardization of data use and with so AI. Would you say here that, that that's one of the biggest challenges for, for government in regards to the, you know, the application of AI principles to bits or, you know, is it something else? It, it's, it's honestly, it's such a big deal. Uh, we as human beings understand the world as information. We understand the world as principles. And when we, we take a slightly higher order perspective on it, then things like the uh, human rights uh, the rights that we have as people. But most naturally, we talk about things in terms of principles, but it's always the detail that trips us up. And if you said to an engineer, or if you said to a data analyst, this is the principle, and is what you're doing aligned with that? And quite well-intentioned individuals would, would develop solutions that may well, in their eyes, be seen to be aligned with those principles. But if you applied external examination, you would see that there at least there were gaps. 
And that's certainly what we're seeing as we step through assurance frameworks. There are always existing frameworks which don't quite line up with the sophisticated use of data and analytics or the sophisticated use of AI. So the ability to, to more firmly and clearly identify templates and guidelines that help map between those two worlds, the better off we are. So it is a very substantial problem. It also helps with those ethical dilemmas that I talked about earlier. So if we've got a, a, a policy that's being implemented or driven or a service that's being driven by an algorithmic solution relying on data, and if, if we're uncomfortable with it, then the ability to decompose it into, is it the AI bit, is it the data bit, or is it actually the policy itself, is actually quite useful because it helps us understand if we've got a problem with the data and the data is biased, the data is incomplete, the data is not necessarily representative, adding AI potentially just makes the situation worse. But it's actually the data itself which is the problem. And then, of course, if we can remove the data from the equation and we're seeing skewed outcomes because of a, a non-data-driven, let's call it a traditional approach, non-data-driven, non-AI-driven approach, at least now we've got a way of starting to think about where the problem lies. And one of the, one of the really beautiful side effects of our need to, to really scrutinize AI is that we're starting to scrutinize a whole lot of different policy positions which means that things that historically would have just seemed like appropriate or common sense or just naturally useful things to do, we're getting better lenses to think through, are these really the right things to do? How could, how could we consider alternatives? How could we consider potential side effects or unintended consequences or, or even frustrations caused to people because of these policies? So there are some interesting side effects of this increased use of data and AI. Yeah, goodness me. And I, I could talk to you all day, Ian, and uh, we have over different times. <laughs> but Matt, is there anything else you want to ask before? Uh, no, I, th I mean, that was a very comprehensive uh, answer. Mm. So I think... Go on, Ian. Sorry. So I was just going to say, I think it's really, really important that we are having sophisticated conversations about data and use of AI this year in particular. Given how much is happening at the Commonwealth level and how much is happening at the state level, the Commonwealth's got its Data Availability Transparency Bill. There's a review of privacy legislation. New South Wales has just released its data strategy. We've got our AI strategy in place. Uh, there's going to be a review of the Data Sharing Act, the 2015 Data Sharing Act that underpinned uh, the, the Data Analytics Centre. There's a lot of moving parts and it's inevitable that we will continue to use data. In fact, we will accelerate use of data and AI is, is helping to drive that accelerated use of, of data. We have to have sophisticated conversations about data sharing and use. And the philosophy we've adopted in New South Wales is not to run fast and break things. In fact, really quite the opposite. We're moving deliberately but cautiously and we're constantly testing where we're going through communicating with, with the broader community, communicating with our AI advisory committee. And once again, this year, we'll hold a, an AI summit where we're talking about not only what we are doing, but where we're planning to go. I think this year really is the year to set direction, to help ensure that if, if we are the, the frog in the pot, that we're helping give ourselves a thermometer, we're identifying some ladders, and we're also starting to develop some instructions on when to hop out of the pond. That's a great way of pulling it in. Uh, thank you for that. Well, listen, I can't let you go without without asking a, a very important question, uh, and, and that is, 
what hobbies uh, or new skills have you developed during this pandemic, Ian? <laughs> my, my cooking has gone through the roof. I've discovered slow cooking and we have plenty of time. So I've dusted off my, believe it or not, my women's weekly <laughs> slow cooking uh, cookbook and a few others. And we have slow cooked food and the house smells spectacular. I did a curry on the weekend, which was five hours. It was amazing. So the hobbies are increased cooking, coupled with increased eating, brilliant, coupled brilliant. with increased How about you, Matt? <laughs> that's a, that's the full exercise. On the central coast? Uh, very much the same. In fact, with very much the same as, uh, as Ian. The only new skill was the um, the unassisted self haircut. Um, <laughs> I, obviously, hairdressers and things are down, so I've, I, I do see a resurgence in the mullet because the front's fine, but the back's a mess. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just let the mullet run free. Uh, but the unassisted home haircut is, is a new skill that I never thought I had. And I am the son of a hairdresser, so uh, my mother would uh, <laughs> That's it for me. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you both very much. Really, I really appreciate it. And, and Ian, keep up with the, the good work. We need you uh, and, and look forward to seeing where this goes next. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, Matt. Fantastic. Cheers, guys.